If you would, as you're turning or going to your seats, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. All right. Almost. I have an announcement. I'm waiting until everyone gets seated, though. And um, I have the privilege of announcing that uh, in this last month, we have two, uh, actually three, new members of our church, people that have been a part of our church for a long time, but now are officially members of our church. First service, we had Mary King, and um, we had her stand up, even though she didn't want to. And this service, we have um, Casey and Teresa Hahai. Are you guys here? You're here, aren't you? Could you guys stand up for us? It's somewhat, in, it's somewhat weird announcing new members because um, a lot of these people are deeply connected to our church and are not new to our church. But um, we want to celebrate what God's doing here and encourage membership. And if you um, are wondering why we uh, take membership so seriously here at Country Oaks and talk about membership so much, I would encourage you to go to the membership class. Um, if not to become a member, if anything, to learn about why we think membership is so important. We'd love for you to become a member, don't get me wrong, but even if you're like, hey, I just don't know about that, what does it mean to be a member of a church? I just want to say this before I move on with the sermon, the second service, so I can keep going, because there's nothing after. Um, uh, When we say membership, we're not talking about like a country club membership. When we say membership... We're talking about what the Bible means by membership, and that's being a member of a body, a human body. You think about that, and all of our bodies have members, thumbs, fingers, ears, eyes, mouths, toes. That's what we mean by membership. We want to know as a pastoral team who belongs to Country Oaks and and who's here just visiting or uh, maybe not um, committing to Country Oaks. Because we are going to be held accountable as a pastoral team to those that are members here at Country Oaks. And we just really want to know who we are accountable to. So I would just encourage you, if you've been coming for a while and you're not sure about membership, um, please talk to one of the the elders. Um, Come to the coffee. We're going to do a a coffee with the pastors. Get to know us a little bit. But I'd really encourage you to go to the membership class and just learn about our heart about membership. So with that all said, if you would pray with me, we'll get started this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord... um, God, I thank you for the words of those last, that last song we sang, Lord, which is just so true. You are sovereign, and you are sovereign over us. You're not just sovereign over us and our lives, Lord, but everything that surrounds our life, God. I pray that we understand that and we find comfort in that, Lord, even when there's evil around us, even when, when things are going differently than we expected, Lord, we know you're in control and that you're good and that you love us, Lord. God, I pray as we go over this passage today in Exodus, Lord, that we see your providence, Lord, your hands. Even behind the scenes, it's so obvious you're working all things together for your glory and the good of those that love you, your people. In this passage, Israel. God, be with us this morning as we look into uh, this, as we continue our, um, our sermon series in Exodus, Lord. I pray that you are glorified and that you encourage us, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen. If you would, follow along with me. Exodus 1, verse 1. It says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, 
each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephetali, Gad, Nasher. Last week we spent some time talking about these first four verses, saying that these first four verses really point us back to the book of Genesis. Genesis is really the introduction and the context of the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus. In fact, you can say it this way, Exodus is the continued story of Genesis. Moses is the author of both Exodus and Genesis. And there's connections that we're going to see throughout Genesis as the context and intro to Exodus is Genesis. Last week, we looked at a number of themes of Genesis, the seed of the woman, which we see from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the entire book of Genesis. The sinfulness or the depravity of man. Over and over and over again, we see man sinning and failing and, and rebelling against God. And that's a continued theme throughout all of Scripture. The goodness of God, despite the depravity of man. The sovereignty of God, as we just sang about. And God's election. In Genesis, God chooses Abraham out of all the families of the world. He chooses Isaac over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau. And Jacob's descendants become God's chosen people, Israel. God's treasured possession. In fact, we read this passage last week, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The major theme of Genesis is the election of Israel, God's chosen people, Israel. And why did God choose Israel? Well, Deuteronomy tells us why God didn't choose Israel. In other words, what wasn't the reason why God chose Israel? Verse 7 says this, It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, it wasn't because Israel was so attractive to God. God didn't look down and say, you know what, I, I need to have them on my team. It wasn't because they were a mighty nation. In fact, it says they were the fewest of all people. You know, when you... Study this doctrine, the doctrine of election, and this idea that, that God chose this people, Israel, should be one of the most humbling doctrines in all of Scripture. Because the Bible says over and over and over and over and over again, God doesn't choose anyone, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the nation of Israel, because they were special. Or it did something to earn God's affection and favor. In fact, the Bible over and over and over again says the exact opposite. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, it says this, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So we get to the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see very clearly that, ex, or that Israel is weak. They're the weak. In fact, look at verse 5. It says this, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
Israel is small and weak. As I said last week, um, my family is bigger than 70. My family in Tehachapi is probably around 70 persons. (laughs) And this is the nation of Israel. And now they're under the control of the most powerful nation in the world. Literally the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That is the theme of Exodus. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. In other words, weak and foolish. Verse 8, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Again, literally the strong. God chose Israel, the weak and foolish, to shame the strong, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Jesus, or Genesis is about election. God choosing Israel. Exodus is about redemption. God saving Israel. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Redemption is the major theme of Exodus. Again, look at verse 5. It says this, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, Then, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. I hope as you're reading... Verse 5 and 6, I really believe, as I've been studying this passage, are meant to be very dark verses. The small nation, Israel, is not in the land that was promised to them. Instead, they're in Egypt. And all the previous generation, all all the stories about Joseph and Jacob and and his brothers are dead. Verses 5 and 6 are meant to be very dark verses, but then we get to verse 7. But, it's one of those beautiful transitions, right? But God, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them first time in all of scripture that the family of Jacob is called the people of Israel. They're becoming a nation. And the author is trying to make a point. Again, this is Moses. He's trying to make a point here. I hope you see it. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. The people of Israel, in other words, were growing into a mighty great nation. You know what verse 7 is? Hope. It's hope. It's hope in the midst of darkness. Verses 6, or 5 and 6 are very dark verses. Verse 7 is hope. And I want to be clear on this because we read the Old Testament the wrong way sometimes. It's not just hope for Israel. It's hope for the whole world. God is filling... Fulfilling his promises. 
God is fulfilling his creation mandate. In Genesis 1, 28, it says this, and God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he gives that same mandate to, to Noah in Genesis 9, verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then he tells Noah again in, in verse 7, ch- chapter 9, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Look at verse 7. Exodus 1, verse 7, again, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God is fulfilling his own command through Israel. And this fulfillment points us back to the garden. It points us to the blessings that were lost because of sin. Not only that, God is also fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We went over this last week, Genesis 12, verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Genesis 13, 16, it says this, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Genesis 15, 5, it says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Genesis 17, 2, it says, That I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. In Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Genesis twenty two seventeen. I shall, I will surely bless you, and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand is on the seashore. And this promise keeps going even after Abraham's death. Genesis twenty six four. I'll multiply your offspring. This is Isaac. As the stars of the heavens, I will. Give to your, your offsprings all these lands, and your offsprings all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis twenty six twenty four. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am God, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Genesis thirty five eleven. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, and the twelve brothers are all dead in verse 6, God is still faithful. In verse 7 it says again, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiply and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 7 is hope. It's hope, again, not just for Israel. It's hope for the whole world because Genesis 26, 4 says, and in your offsprings, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And I said this first service as I was looking out to our congregation. I don't know very many people that are direct descendants 
of Abraham physically here, but the nations are represented in the church. And the nations have been blessed through God fulfilling his promise to Israel. Verse 7 is hope. But because we live in a fallen world, there's always going to be opposition, oppression, persecution. There is always going to be opposition to the ways of God in this world. Again, verse 7 is hope, but look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We don't know much about this king who is Pharaoh. But we do know he sets himself up against God. In fact, in Exodus 5 verse 1 it says this, Afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, L-O-R-D, capital. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Exodus, and this is very important, is largely about God making his name known to Pharaoh. Through Pharaoh's opposition of God, God will display his glory and reveal his name. In chapters 1 and 2, we see the start of this opposition against God. Three attacks on God's people, which are really three attempts to stop the blessing of God for Israel and to the world. The promise is found in Genesis. In fact, Pharaoh, as we will see, proves to be the seed of the serpent trying to attack and stop the seed of the woman. So if you would, there's three different attempts that Pharaoh uses to stop the seed of the woman, to stop Israel, to stop the blessings of God. The first attempt is found in verse 9, starting in verse 9. The first attempt is slavery. So verse 9 says this, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now I want you to notice something in that, in these two verses. Pharaoh uses the personal pronouns, us and we. Verse 9, he, this is Pharaoh, said to his people. So he's talking to his people. Somehow he gets his message out to his people is a public declaration and the king is identifying with his people. And he says, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. You know what Pharaoh's doing here? He's using fear. He's manipulating his own people using fear. He says, and, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. At this point, through the story of Exodus, Genesis and Exodus, there really isn't any indication that Israel is any type of a threat. In fact, 
Egypt has only been blessed by the presence of the Israelites. Joseph prepared Egypt for a famine. This is purely a hypothetical situation. It's propaganda to install fear in the people so that Egypt would turn on the Israelites and Pharaoh could accomplish his evil deeds. Look at verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them and afflicted them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithmon and Ramses. Heavy burdens just means harsh labor. There's a lot of evidence that the Egyptians treated their slaves in barbaric ways. Look at verse 11. It says, therefore they set taskmasters over them. There's actually pictures in Egypt of taskmasters over the slaves with whips and sticks beating those that were working. Again, just like verses 5 and 6, these are dark verses. You see this persecution, this opposition towards the way of God, towards God's people. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more the spread abroad. God is still fulfilling his promise to the Israelites. But look what it says in the second half of verse 12. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now, when I first read through this and was studying this passage, I just thought that was an interesting verse. Why were the Egyptians in dread of the people of Israel? I came up with just two reasons that I think could be why they're in dread. First, because of the propaganda of Pharaoh, the hypothetical situation that Pharaoh proposed to to the Egyptians, the, the spread of fear to control the Egyptians. But second, the supernatural growth of the Israelites. For Israel to really get as big as they did, if you look at the timeline from when they entered into Egypt to the place where this is taking, taking place. Um, it seems like there is a supernatural blessing on the Israelites. And I'm sure the Egyptians recognize it. In fact, look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied. It was obvious to the Egyptians that God's blessing was on the Israelites. Because of that, they were in fear of them. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and bricks and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Again, dark verses, but... Verse 12, right? The more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. In other words, it's very clear in this first part of the story here that Pharaoh's first attempt to stop God's working through the Israelites, to stop the growth of the Israelites, to stop God's blessing, failed. So, there's a second attempt. A quiet genocide. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women 
and see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And this is interesting. One of the questions that you get as you're going through this passage is, who are these midwives? I think they're Hebrew. I know it says Hebrew midwives, but in the Hebrew itself, it could mean midwives of the Hebrews, or it could mean Hebrew midwives of the Hebrews, if that makes sense. And so there's an argument, are these Hebrew midwives or not? Well, the names, both names are Hebrew names. So I think they're Hebrew. They're Israelites, in other words, Hebrew is just another name for Israelite. There's two thoughts about these two midwives. One is that these are the only midwives for all the people of Israel, which for a lot of people seems unlikely because there are so many people. How could there only be two midwives for so many people? So there's a second thought that these are two midwives that were in charge of all the midwives for the Hebrews. Either way, I don't think it matters too much because these two midwives were given the responsibility to kill the boys born to any Israelite. Why ask the midwives to do this, especially if they're Hebrews? Seems like a weird thing to ask midwives or Hebrews to do that. Well, why ask this? And as you study this, I really think the reason is is that Pharaoh wanted to keep this genocide as quiet as possible. And so way of doing that is ask these midwives. These midwives probably had some kind of access to the baby in a way where they could kill them without anyone knowing it. And that would accomplish a couple things. First, it would stop the growth. If you take away a whole generation of men, um, then the Hebrews are not going to grow. But second, it would seem like God has spitened them. If all the male babies suddenly died in a week or a month or two months for a whole people, And obviously they did something to make God angry. So it solves the problem of the Israelites' growth, and it was quiet, quiet genocide. Just as a side note, I couldn't get past this without making parallels to our quiet genocide. Abortion. The medical industry can murder babies without anyone knowing it. Before anyone knows a mother is pregnant, a lot of times, quiet genocide, 60 million babies, gone. I point this out just because I want you to know as we go through Old Testament and you go, how does this relate to today? Satan's ways aren't new. He's a liar and murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, says, He that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's ways aren't new. It's almost, I don't know if the word sad, ironic, boring, same thing over and over and over and over again through the history of mankind. We think we're so advanced. Pharaoh was a seed of the serpent. He's trying to hide his murderous ways in a quiet genocide. 
stop the growth of the Israelites, to stop the blessing of God. But look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. In other words, they disobeyed Pharaoh. Not because they were rebellious or hated the king, or in other words, it was some political movement. Not even because they were so loyal to their own people, which I'm sure they were. But scriptures make it very clear why they disobeyed Pharaoh. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God. I just want to say these are two brave women. There's a lot of people throughout scripture that I cannot wait to meet when I get in heaven. These are two of them because we don't know much about them. They had the the conviction to obey God rather than man. Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, when man's law comes into conflict with God's law, the apostles said we must obey God rather than men. These two women modeled this beautifully. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. Verse 20, So God dealt well with the midwives. Now there's a dilemma here that has bothered a lot of people throughout um, the history of interpreting scripture. It seems like the midwives lied to Pharaoh, and right afterwards, verse 20, it says that God dwelt well with them. In other words, God blessed them right after this lie. So why would God bless them if they lied? That's the question that gets asked, and I think it's a good question. There's a couple things I want to point out about this first. The theological lesson in this, right, to take away from this passage is not that lying is a gray area or sometimes allowable. It's just the lie is not the focus of this passage. If they lied, I just want to be clear, it was a sin. But the sin should not overshadow the bravery of these two midwives. The focus is on the fear of God over man in this passage. And the risk they took to save lives. Second observation, just real quick. Even our best deeds need to be covered by God's grace. Because everything we do is hopelessly tainted with sin. Let me just ask a question. How many of you guys have gone out and you don't have to raise your hand, by the way, before I ask this question? I'll raise it because I this is I've asked this question because I'm this person. How many of you have gone out and shared the gospel and your first thought after you shared the gospel is man, look at me, I just shared the gospel better believe there's some pride in that. (laughs) We are hopelessly sinful and need God's grace even in our good deeds. We need him to cover. Third observation. Living in a fallen world is often hard. And I just want to be clear on this. Sin and evil complicate things. In fact, being a pastor for the last 10 years, I've just seen 
how complicated things get when sin is involved. I encourage you, if you're struggling in your marriage, get help. If you're thinking about walking out or getting a divorce, you're facing a way rougher path than sticking around and getting help. Sin complicates things. And it's not always easy to know exactly what to do in every situation because of the complications of sin and living in a fallen world. This also means we need to have grace on each other. I hope 2020 has proven that. I've just talked to so many pastors. I just was on the phone with a group of pastors in tears. A number of them for how hard this last year has been. The church has fallen apart because of the vision and the lack of grace for each other. Grace towards each other that have differences in convictions. It's often hard living in a fallen world. You know exactly what the right decision is to move forward. I pray, and I know you guys have had grace on us as an elder board as we've had to make hard decisions and figure things out. I want to be clear, though, as we get back to the story. When these two midwives were put on the spot, it seems like in the passage, I don't know how to get around it, they lied. But it doesn't mean lying's okay. It does mean they were put in a difficult situation. But let's not miss the main point. They were brave. And they bravely feared God instead of man. And God makes it clear by blessing them in verse 20. So God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Again, we see God's blessing on the midwives, but even on the people, it says the people multiplied and grew very strong. In other words, Pharaoh's second attempt to stop God's blessing failed. So in desperation, we see a third evil attempt, an outright genocide. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, that means all the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is just a public outright genocide. And before we move on, I think we get so familiar with these stories, and this is one of them, right? There's cartoons about it, and I want you to feel the weight, how horrific this truly is. All the sons that are born in a time period, we don't know that time period, thrown into the Nile. Evil, publicly displayed, the seed of the serpent at war with the seed of the woman, the Israelites. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. His baby is Moses, who becomes the main character next to God in the book of Exodus. But look at the end of verse 1. It says something very interesting. It says, And she, that's Moses' mom, saw 
that he was a fine child. The Hebrew word there probably means something like he was healthy, he was good-looking, meaning he was healthy, or maybe he was just a cute child. Or maybe there was just something special about Moses. You just saw him as a baby, and you're like, God's blessing is on this child. Either way, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Look at verse 3. When she could... Which she could hide him no longer. In other words, he was getting too loud, too big. He, she took him for, or she took for him a basket made of uh, bulrushes and dubbed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. You know the story, right? Again, we've seen cartoons and heard it in Sunday school. But something's interesting that is missed in most modern tra- translations: the word basket. In Hebrew, that word literally means box or chest, so you can picture what that basket looks like. Jews, this word, 28 times in Scripture for Hebrew, for a Hebrew word, that's not very much in the whole Old Testament, only 28 times. Two times in Exodus 2, in this story that we're talking about. 26 times in one other place. Any guesses? Genesis 6 through 9. And it's translated, ark. Noah and the ark. In fact, the New King James gets it right and alludes to this by saying, but when she, that's Moses' mom, could no longer hide him, she took an ark. In other words, just like Genesis 6 through 9, remember Moses is the author of both. I think he was purposeful in using this word. The hope of mankind is found once again in an ark. Noah and his family... In Genesis 6 through 9, in Exodus 2, the hope of Israel is found once again in an ark floating down the Nile. A baby that will grow up into the deliverer of Israel. And it's not the last time the hope of Israel will be found in a baby. Look at verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river she saw the basket among the reeds and sent uh, for her, her servant woman and she took it when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby was crying she took pity on him and said this is one of the Hebrews children then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the the, the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now listen to this, verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Now this is Pharaoh's daughter, so the princess of Egypt, is talking to Moses' mom, as Pharaoh has Moses Pharaoh's daughter has Moses Moses in her arms, probably. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wedges. So the woman took the child and nursed him. In other words, not only was this baby returned to the mother, but she's going to get paid to take care of him. I think God's hand is moving. And it keeps going. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. 
So you know the Hebrew word for Moses sounds like I drew him out, the word for I drew him out. So you think about this. Moses now will grow up in Pharaoh's own household. And in this day and age, would be given the best education in the world. He'd learn rhetoric, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, art of diplomacy. In other words, Pharaoh is now training the very person that will one day be used by God as his instrument of deliverance from Pharaoh. Interesting, as you read these first two chapters, Pharaoh thought he was sovereign over Egypt. But even with little reference to God at all in the very first chapters, it is clear that God is in control and God is truly sovereign over Egypt and Israel. We're going to continue the story next week. But before we end, I just want to make some observations of this passage observations of Exodus as we continue to understand what God is teaching us through this book. The first observation I want to make, and I hope you guys saw this, Moses is a type of Christ. Moses is a type of Jesus. In other words, Moses' life points to a future greater deliverer, Jesus Christ. You think about it. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, killed all the newborn baby boys born around the birth of Moses, yet Moses was saved. King Herod, another seed of the serpent, killed all the newborn baby boys in Bethlehem around the birth of Jesus, yet Jesus was saved. And how was Jesus saved? By finding shelter in Egypt. In fact, Matthew 2.13 says this, Now, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that last verse, verse 15, is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and there is a lot in this passage. But I just want you to just want to point out that Jesus found shelter in Egypt for a time. Just like Israel found shelter in Egypt for a time, just like Moses is finding shelter in Egypt, in fact, in Pharaoh's own household for a time. Moses is a type of Jesus, and we're going to see this over and over and over again in the book of Exodus. In fact, there's some difficult passages in the book of Exodus that are are seen clearly if you understand that Moses' life points to Jesus. We'll get to them. Second observation I want to make, and I think this is important. The first heroes of Exodus were all women. I want you to think about this for a second. Let me just go through the main characters of the first two chapters. You have Pharaoh, who's the seed of the serpent. He's the enemy. You have Moses, who really is just a helpless baby in the first two chapters for the most part. Then you have two amazingly brave midwives. Two women. Brave, self-sacrificial, 
feared God over man. And you go from them, you have Moses' mother, who risked her life to save her child, hid the baby for three months, and for sure, again, put her own life on the line. And it's interesting, this doesn't say anything about the father in the first chapter, but we, we learn in Hebrews 11, verse 23, that Moses' dad was involved because it says this, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. In other words, Moses' mother feared God over man and risked her life to save her child. Then you have Moses' sister. Moses does have a brother, but it's not mentioned in the first chapter, but his sister is mentioned. We don't know why she followed Moses down the river. Maybe she was told to. But she was brave and very (laughs) quick-witted. Even Pharaoh's daughter had compassion for the child and saved his life. In the first two chapters of Exodus, all the heroes are women. Listen, I say this because at COBC we believe in complementarianism, which just means that men and women are different and their roles complement each other. They have different roles. Different roles in marriage. You heard Matt pray that the man's called the lead. The woman's called the follow. Different roles that complement each other. There's different roles within the church. Every one of our elders are men. But that does not mean women are inferior. In fact, the first five heroes of Exodus were faithful women. Five, or four out of the five, bravely feared God over man. God used all of their faithfulness for the redemption of Israel. Third observation I want to make. The people of God should not be surprised when they are met with persecution. The people of God should not be surprised when they are met with persecution. In this world, in this world, God's people will be hated. That sounds weird. And as you're up here, we're, aren't we as Christians supposed to be loving and winsome and going out in the community and doing good works and loving on people? It's true. We're supposed to be all those things, but we will be hated for it. And the Bible cannot be clearer on this. Matthew ten twenty one: brothers will deliver brothers over to death and father... And the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all, for my name's sake. The one who endures the end will be saved. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, just like Israel... Therefore, the world hates you. John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. It shouldn't be a surprise when the world hates us because we're not of the world. In fact, it should be more surprising when the world doesn't hate us. 
Look at verse 7 again, Exodus 1, verse 7. But the people of God, the people of Israel, sorry, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. Again, God's blessing is on the Israelites. There's hope in this verse. Now look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Pharaoh represents the seed of the serpent. Remember Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, that's the serpent, and her seed. Pharaoh, as the seed of the serpent, is at war with the seed of the woman. There's enmity. There's war. And it keeps going throughout all of Scripture, and it keeps going throughout all of church history, and it will keep going till the return of Christ. In fact, you see this very clearly in Revelation as a serpent tries to kill the child. The dragon. The people of God should not be surprised when they are met with persecution. This world is not our home. 1 John 5.19 says the world lies in the power of the evil one. But there's someone sovereign over that evil one. Which leads us to our fourth observation. Here's the good news. Evil will always be frustrated by its inability to stop God and his purposes. Pharaoh, seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, fails three times in our passage to stop God's blessing. And we're going to see this over and over and over and over again. In fact, you see it over and over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture. We saw it last week with Joseph and his brothers. Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me. Right? You wanted to kill me. You threw me into slavery. I ended up in jail, but then I ended up second in command of, 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 of Egypt. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Evil's purposes was frustrated, in, in other words. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Evil will always be frustrated by its inability to stop God and his purposes. Over and over again, God uses evil to bring about good. The greatest example of this is the cross. The greatest evil mankind has ever committed killing the Son of God. He came here and we killed him. The greatest good that's ever happened to mankind is the death of the Son of God. You can use Genesis 50-20 for the cross. As for you, you meant evil against me, the cross, right? Mankind meant evil. We wanted him dead. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Which brings me to my last observation. If, in fact, if you would turn there, we're just about done. I have two pages left. Exodus 50, verse 1. Fifth, fifth observation is this. God is slowly revealing his name in Exodus. I just read this, but I want you guys to see it. Exodus 5, verse 1. 
after Moses and Aaron went and said to Moses or said to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness." But Pharaoh said, "Who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go?" Pharaoh thought he was sovereign over Israel. Pharaoh thought he, Israel, belonged to him. He says, I don't know this Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. In Exodus chapter 1 and 2, I hope you see and have seen that God is completely in control of everything that was happening. Yet, God's name is not mentioned once in the first two chapters. There's two major themes of the book of Exodus, and they're related. One theme is the redemption of Israel, and I think most people focus on that when they look at the book of Exodus, but I think the major theme that is even a bigger theme than the redemption of Israel is the revealing of what it means that God is Yahweh. It's the revealing of God's name and the meaning behind it. It's interesting even though God is in control of everything in the first two chapters, he's behind the scenes. He's working providentially. You don't see his name used. You don't see him very much besides what he's doing. That will all change very soon in Exodus. God is slowly revealing what it means that he is Yahweh and the revelation gets more and more intense as the book goes on. And we'll continue the story next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I'm so thankful for the stories that you have written in your word, Lord. As I've prayed many times, your word is not boring. It's engaging. I love narrative. I love that we can learn about you through narrative. And one of the things we learn in the first two chapters is just how in control you truly are of everything, even the small details of our lives, Lord. You are sovereign over us. That even when evil things happen, when we don't know what is going on in our lives, Lord, we can trust that you are good and you're in control. God, I thank you for that. And as we see persecution coming, Lord, and how fearful that truly is, Lord, through it we can trust that you are in control and that you'll use everything for your glory and our good, Lord. Help us to trust in you. In your son's name, amen.